Plot twists. We're obsessed with them. In film, life and love, they turn up everywhere. It's that moment in a story where it takes you in an unexpected direction. I'm Tom, comedy and impressions lover. And I'm Fran, super fan of reality TV and rom-coms. And we're from now. And throughout this series, we're going to be interviewing TV and film stars, asking them all about their favourite plot twists, both on and off screen. So expect the unexpected, and hopefully some behind-the-scenes gems that you've never heard before. Contain spoilers. Obviously. So I was mulling over this week's guest and reflecting on some of our conversations we've had with guests Mm. and also some we've had off of the podcast because we do... We do chat. Do chat a lot. We do chat a lot. And I feel like you would probably class yourself as a little bit of a hard man. When have I ever suggested that I'm a bit of a hard man? Well... I mean, I am. Maybe not explicitly, but there's definitely references that I think you'd back yourself. Well, you've got to back yourself a little bit, Fran. Well, the good news for you is I've developed a very, very tiny quiz <laughs> to see if you are a hard man. <laughs> right. OK. <laughs> only three questions. Um, so have you ever been to a prison that would probably be classed one of the world's most dangerous? Well, of course I haven't. Obviously not. <laughs> Noted. Uh, have you ever been under fire in a trench in a war zone? I can't say I have. Hmm. Interesting. And have you ever hung out with gang members in El Salvador? (laughs) No. No, I haven't. Okay, let me just analyse those results. And no one listening is going to be surprised to know. You've come out with a big fat zero and you're not a hard man. No, I could have probably guessed that myself. But our guest this week has been in all those situations and he probably he would is a score a big man. three. He would. That is Ross Kemp. Uh, it's we're Ross very Kemp. happy to be chatting to. And no, I'm not a super army soldier like Ross, with a little cheeky reference to extras there. Um but yeah, he's been in all those situations and, and, and so many more. It's nuts. Yeah, there's not many people who would say yes to the three questions I just asked you, mm. but you know, Ross Kemp can. Yeah, he's he really is just one of a kind, I guess, in terms of those experiences. And to go from Grant Mitchell and EastEnders. I know. I used transition. to watch him in EastEnders. Yeah. I feel there's not many people whose characters transcend the years and carry the reputation of someone like Grant Mitchell. No. I mean, it's 20 years since he properly left the show. And Crazy. still we're talking about Grant Mitchell. Phil's still there, so he's still... Yeah. <laughs> Phil's still hanging around. <laughs> he's still, he's still around. hanging around. Uh, but... After winning documentary maker Ross Kemp is with us and Ross Kemp on Gangs, Extreme World, he's put himself in some pretty incredible situations. And he's got a new series that's coming out, which feels a little bit different. I was going to say it's different to what he's done before because it's called Shipwreck Treasure Hunter and they go exploring shipwrecks. But then when we took a step back, we were like, oh, no, it is still quite extreme. Yeah, I mean, it, it, I think it's just in his DNA. That's just Yeah, he of is. course he had to train to do deep sea diving to, you know, go and look around shipwrecks. <laughs> <laughs> the Shipwreck Treasure Hunter is on now from the 18th of April and on Sky History as well. So looking forward to that. And Extreme World, where we talk about some of these situations later on in the interview with Ross. Series three, four and six is on now. So check those out because they're just awesome. So before we get listening, I think I can speak for everyone. I say I'm very excited about this because of yes. all the plot twist people. I think Ross Kemp's stories are going to be the most epic. Let's get to it then. Here he is. It's Ross Kemp on Plot Twist. 
Ross, delighted to have you on the podcast. And I uh, I don't want to put you under pressure from the off, <laughs> but I feel that if there was anyone you want on your podcast to tell a great story, you'd be like, right, where's Ross Kemp? Oh, I'm not sure about that. Um, it's also a bit early in the day. I tell better stories after <laughs> uh, after the children have gone to bed and the Pinot Noir comes out. But, um, you know, I, I think there is something to be said for, for telling stories because of COVID. And if there's anything positive to come out of COVID is the fact that podcasts in themselves have blossomed. Well, we certainly have plenty of questions to unravel. There's been a lot going on for you lately. Obviously, you've got a new game show, got a new documentary series coming yeah. out. Uh, you keep you keeping busy. Yeah, I mean, and in a way, I'm quite lucky because it's pretty varied and I worked all the way through the first lockdown. I I think that was probably one of the hardest things I've ever done in this country was to be in, in, in Milton Keynes University Hospital during mm. the first outbreak. You know, I've, I've been fortunate or unfortunate enough to be into a few war zones around the world and, and seen a little bit of suffering around the world in different places. But to see it on your own front door was quite a shocking moment of realisation for me. I think I've always thought that, you know, I travel around the world and I'm very fortunate, but you know what? I meet some incredibly brave people who I have to say goodbye to at the airport terminal or, 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 or goodbye to in their village. And then I sail off back to, you know, my splendid isolation in the United Kingdom. And I think it's been a, uh, a real wake up call for a lot of us in terms of how we live our lives and, and how we think of our own country. Um, you know, and particularly in light of what's happened in the Ukraine recently as well. You know, we think things are sailing along quite merrily. Um, but, you know, I think we should always wake up every morning and be thankful for the fact that our eyes have opened. Mm. So, you know, being in Milton Keynes ICU, just watching the sacrifices being made by the staff there, and that goes for everyone from the people that, were, you know, were pushing the trolleys to the people that were making the big decisions, you know, the doctors and above was quite an eye-opener and also a very humbling experience. We're very much indebted to the NHS. Must, uh, 100%. Yeah, I want to call that out. Absolutely. I mentioned some of the other projects. Now, we do want to talk about sort of Ukraine and Afghanistan because obviously you have links where you've done documentaries there and spent a lot of time in those regions, and we will come on to that. But um, I, I thought with your other documentary that's coming up, uh, Shipwreck Treasure Hunter, which lands on Sky now next month. I thought this is almost really good timing because what's been going on in the news lately with uh, Shackleton's uh, ship Endurance just being discovered. Yeah, 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 absolutely. I mean, it looks incredible, doesn't it? It looks like it's it been... does, yeah. yeah. exactly. Look, it's been, you know, um, it's like something that's been dug out of a pit somewhere where it's been preserved. So, um, yeah, it's an incredible find, isn't it? 107 years, Yeah, isn't it? I mean... and, and it's three kilometres. I mean, you don't dive at three kilometres, obviously. So, obviously, it's been done with a submarine, I take it, and with probably a, an underwater drone. But it's an incredible find. And yeah, good timing for me in terms of the 18th of April and the first shipwreck treasure hunters. <laughs> <laughs> I find shipwrecks quite eerie. Like you say, especially when it is preserved because it's just in the ocean exactly as it was, but has disappeared from sight. I find something quite eerie about them. Do you know what's eerie about diving in the UK is the visibility. Must mm. be murky. You could say that and you could say pitch black oh. so when you're doing your training you do a lot of night diving and you have to go down and tie bowlines and different variant marine knots and untie them in the dark and there is method to that because if you get stuck a the viz is bad anyway but if you get stuck in a wreck and you can't find your way out you've not got to panic you've got to follow the lines and the protocols to get yourself out and 
sadly, some people don't make their way out of shipwrecks in the UK mm. every year. Sadly, people do die. So it's it's a pretty precarious um, hobby. I was going to say, did you find any treasure? Was there anything that uh, was interesting as part of your any any? Hints? I didn't find any gold bars, if that's what you're asking. Because <laughs> because if I had, I wouldn't be doing this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we won't be here now. But um, I think it's a definition of treasure. So what I found out was that my great great grandfather came over to England from Ireland. He set up. I had no idea before we started making these docks. He set it up his own barge company uh, pushing sand around Portsmouth when there was the industrial revolution was happening so a lot of building going on and then he decided to retire bought a pub called the Ship and Castle which still exists it's at the ferry terminal in Portsmouth still uh, a a naval pub it's got ships all over it and people have worked it there's also a picture of what we believe is him and some of his 13 children of which my great-grandfather was one Nearly all, wow. the, all the males went into the Navy. And so my great-grandfather, who was called Pop, who I did meet when I was very young, and still had a pipe at 85, spent, I think, 60 years at sea. Uh, he was wow. shipwrecked three times, once in the First World War, twice in the Second World War, was presumed dead by my grandmother. And my grandmother spoke about him quite a lot when I was growing up, that he turned up one day. The, her, her husband was with the Eighth Army out in Africa. And he just turned up on the door dressed as an American seaman. He'd been, he'd been, uh, he'd been hit by a Japanese torpedo out in the South Seas. And he'd been rescued by an American ship and plumped on an island, left there for two months, and they eventually got him all the way back to England during a war. Wow. So there was an interest there. Two of my, so his two nephews, one who was my nan's best friend, they were blown up on a, on a battleship called HMS Hood, which was destroyed by the Bismarck in the early years of the Second World War. So I knew about these two guys. They were pretty handsome chaps and pretty dapper boys. They lived, they grew, one grew up in Portsmouth, one grew up on the farm with my nan in Norfolk. As soon as they joined together on one ship, they'd both been in the Navy, but when they joined together on that ship, it sailed out of Scarpa Flow and it was hit by the Bismarck in the Straits of Denmark. Now, we couldn't dive on that because it's far too deep, but we did dive on a number of ships in Scarpa Flow. And I tell you what, for me, why it works. It's because you can go to museums, and occasionally you're allowed to touch artifacts, but mainly there's a distance between mm. them and your acidy mm. fingers destroying it. When you go and find a shipwreck, even if it's like it suddenly appears out of the kind of darkness, you get this sense of, my word, I am insignificant. This thing yeah. is here and I'm allowed to touch it. I'm not only allowed to touch it, I can go inside it. And you get a, a tangible feeling that takes you like in a time walk back to when men, mm. men mm. I don't think women lived on them in those days, but men lived on them, they fought on them, they played cards, they drank, they ate, you could see the toilets, they went to the toilet and sadly, many of them died on them. And there is a, an overwhelming sense of connection that you get mm. because there's no sound. Also, it's a very new way of making television in terms of, I go down with an expert and I'm the novice obviously, but we can talk to each other while we're down there. And I've, I've seen people using comms to a camera before underwater, but I've never seen two people going, oh, look at this. And oh, look, the breach block's been taking off. So that must have happened. A personal before. tour, really, being taken around it. Totally. And also, it's a tour of adventure because things don't go to plan. And there are moments when I they have to bleep me out occasionally. Um, <laughs> because, you know, there's one moment we actually found. It's a great way to get about history. We find with the help of a marine archaeologist, 
an actual slaver. We don't know exactly the period yet, but we found the guns that were used to turn on the enslaved people. So it would leave the South Coast, it would go to West Africa, it would either capture by force and kill a lot of people or buy them off other people, indigenous people, then sail across to the Indies, where they would deposit those people to a life of servitude as slaves, mainly on sugar plantations, and then come back with the sugar to England. And it's a part of our history that we like to forget about, and it's mm -hmm. not often taught in schools, I'm pretty sure it wasn't taught when I was at school. And so no. it's also a good way of saying, you know, well, there are things in our history to be proud of, but there are also things in our history, if you're British, that we shouldn't be proud of and, and that we should talk about. And this is, again, I think is, is, is a novel way of informing people about some of the darker sides and the darker parts of our history. I think it's important that people know that. That's a, it kind of sets up a better world for today by understanding the faults of the past. Well, Hawkins, who was one of the lead slave traders, even his coat of arms had an African on top of it, uh, an enslaved African on top of it. And I think his personal wealth at the time was not far off Microsoft's in comparison to today. <laughs> you think about it, that money was being made mm. from complete misery. And, and also you're talking about a time when people with black teeth were considered to be wealthy because they could afford sugar. So it was an actual, people colored their teeth black if they weren't rich enough to have the sugar. So they look wealthy. It's extraordinary. So th different times as well, yeah. uh, you know, but also a past that we should not forget and not be allowed to forget, I would say. But also, we, we dive on a blockade runner, which was, um, I didn't know this, you know, without the uh, support of wealthy British businessmen, the War of the Confederacy between the Union, that could probably have ended a year to two years earlier, but we were helping to supply them in exchange for cotton with guns, bullets, cannons, because they had no manufacturing sites in the South. So had British businessmen not wanted to make a profit out of the misery of that war, then slavery in the United States would have ended two years earlier and a lot of people would not have died. Another part of our history that you don't get taught about in school. Mm. But I, we dive on a blockade runner in the Bristol Channel and it's like this big old paddle steamer. Obviously the wood has gone, but you see these amazing spokes that were, were part of this boat. Yeah, yeah. So that was just off Lundy. So yeah, it was a, it was a two month course for which I didn't get paid to do. Uh, um, <laughs> But, you know, I'm now an HSC qualified diver. There was one moment, I'm in a pond, I call it a pond, it's a very large lake just outside of Heathrow in a place called Raysbury. Not exactly the, you know, exotic location that I was hoping for. <laughs> you can literally see the undercarriage, of the inside the undercarriage of the planes as they land at Terminal 4. And the water vibrates as they go over if you're underneath, you can sense a jet going over. And there I am sitting on a container with my radio, my full mask on, I've got a spanner in my hand that's attached. I've got a, I'm on like a, a bungee that you wear when you clean windows, if you, you know, when they clean windows. Yeah, yeah. So one pool, I'm okay, one, one pool, I'm okay. Four pools, get me up quickly. Um, <laughs> and I'm calling on my radio for scaffolding pipes to be dropped down next to me and then a clip. And then I'm tying these bits of scaffolding together, right? Building a, sca a square scaffolding, box scaffolding. And I'm going, this isn't what I trained to do at drama school, lovey. <laughs> where, 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 oh, where are the tap shoes? Where are the jazz bells? Where are the plies? <laughs> no, send me another straight oh. in the clip. 
over. <laughs> Diver one. So yeah, uh, it uh, was um, it was a it was a voyage. Excuse the pun, and there's a lot of naval puns you can use. It was a voyage. It was a voyage <laughs> of discovery. <laughs> oh, I love it. We will come back more to some of those experiences and some of your other experiences as well. But we wanted to throw some very quick fire random questions at you. Yeah, so we play a bit of a game with our guests where we ask them some random questions. And I feel, Ross, you've got loads of amazing stories. So these are kind of the everyday man's questions that we're desperate to know. So <laughs> we know that you're really well travelled and obviously on those travels you might be you know, on an air or train or boat, as you say. But where's the strangest place you've ever fallen asleep? Oh, um, they recorded it. Uh, I, I used to have really bad snoring issues. I don't have them anymore. And we were in uh, a minibus going over the Andes to get to Shining Path. Uh, we were doing story. I went over there to make cocaine in the jungle. And, as you uh, do. As you do. We worked out the pace that we made there once we were over the other side of the Andes and in the other side, on the other side, because this is Shining Path, a remarkable organisation, so the proving government have no uh, power over these people. They're, it's a city that's unto its own self. It's called San Francisco, but don't, it hasn't got a golden gate. It's got a bridge, but not the golden <laughs> gate bridge. Um, anyway, come story short, we'd stopped to have some potatoes, like you do, and then we'd gone over a bridge that was made out of railway sleepers, so the wheels on the vehicle were wider than the bridge. It's a very oh. odd experience. And oh, I remember, because obviously we couldn't, the, the drivers, we got out. We got out and went across the bridge because there was like a little bit that you could walk across, but you couldn't get vehicles over it. And I can remember watching the vehicle go over and there, were, there was a waterfall going underneath the vehicle where the sleepers are on. And this is, on, the great thing about what I do is I'm not linking this up because it's on camera, so you can see it, right? Yeah. And there were clouds. We were so <laughs> high up. There were clouds below us. And it's just like, well, and I, anyway. <laughs> But we still had a long way to go. We actually, I fell asleep at that point. After we got through over that bridge, I was like so relieved. I just went to bed. I fell asleep in the back of this mini combi all the way in to San Francisco. And as we came into San Francisco, the mud was up past the wheel arch. It looked like a chocolate mousse. And there was a wedding going on unbeknownst to us. The little kid came running out. And he went straight under the front of the vehicle. As I woke my eyes up, and I remember Luis, who was our translator, going, no, driver brake. Driver's been driving for too long, but he wouldn't let any of us take over the wheels of the vehicle. For which I, most oh of it, I've been going. <laughs> and the sound, it was so apparently loud, the sound man had it on and played it back to me. And after that, I did something about my, uh, my snoring. Um, <laughs> but the kid went, like, we thought he'd gone under the wheels. So we all get out and this, this town are not friendly towards Westerners anyway because they think that everyone's connected to the CIA and most Westerners would have been in anti-narcotics that, that mm. travel there. And um, luckily, because the mud's so thick, he surfed, the kid surfed in front of the vehicle. And so we pick him up and I'm, clear, I'm helping to clear his ears and his airways and, and they're just screaming and shouting, leave the child alone in, in, in a language that Luis doesn't under, understand because it's not Spanish. Anyway, we take the kid with the father in the vehicle to the local medic and the kid's absolutely fine. And after we then pay a bit of money for the wedding and, and, and we were OK. But so sleeping, yeah, in helicopters I can sleep. Chinooks I've fallen asleep in, I've fallen asleep upside down in an armoured personnel carrier because we were stuck there for four hours. What? Uh, you can sleep, trust me, um, what, in Alaska on my own in a bivouac with bears and moose running around, I could sleep anywhere. 
I was going to say, I think if I asked Tom that's that question, skill. it would be a very different answer. Tom would be ah. like, fell asleep once on a train. No, a random village in Vietnam. I was doing a little I think you can, honestly, it, you know, particularly when you were doing 18-hour patrol. I used to, I fell asleep once. And I, so we, we took over, we, we take, we go compound hopping. So you go from compound to compound and then you try and outguess, well, the, the officers in command would outguess where the ambush would be when we left because they'd be, laying up through the night but sometimes you get out and you try and beat them so you'd always leave before first light but it's a true story i've not told me through the story so <laughs> me and the, me and the uh forward operating officer who calls in mortars who calls in ground artillery me and him gone quite well so we found this we'd not seen it before in many of the uh, compounds and it was like a little bed with like you know wicker and straw on it so we thought oh we'll lie under this because the light it's a bit like there's a lot of light from the stars, there's no light from anything else, but you know what? It'd be good. And also, if there's a bit of shrapnel comes in tonight, that might like it's not going to do much, but it, it you know, protects you from something. We didn't realize that this was the bed of the people that owned the compound who have a very healthy vegetarian diet. So they're on top of us, and they're only on top of us for a couple of minutes before the first. And I'm sure they'd had more lentils on purpose because they knew that him and I were underneath it. So we lasted there for about five minutes. So we got out, couldn't ask them to move. So I couldn't find anywhere to sleep because there were about 35 blokes in this compound, apart from the ones that are on stag. So I woke up, right, with my foot on this bloke's boot, right, that had been walking through every kind of, kind of animal feces for the last, you know, blast patrol. And, you know, we, you used to walk in the canals. The, the Afghans are brilliant irrigators. So they can keep the waters from the rains that come down the winter circulating all the way through the summer. They are the genius of irrigation. And also all their fields, they recycle their own poo to grow all the poppies and the wheat and everything else. So you often find yourself head down. I can't clean my teeth with mint toothpaste without thinking of Afghan poo, because I was in a horrendous uh, ambush. Uh, and they pile it up in little triangles so they know where it is in the fields when they're, when they're fertilizing the fields. But so we're going through this field, there's fresh mint growing everywhere. And then we get hit with the bullets going zip, zip, zip. And I just stick my face down and I'm, I hit one of those triangles. So mint and oh, poo go together for me. <laughs> Talk about smell being one of the strongest kind of influences yeah, yeah, of memory. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there you yeah, go. Absolutely. But I can sleep generally anywhere apart from my children are screaming, which is nearly every night. <laughs> <laughs> that was brilliant. I've got one going back to the past, actually, or growing up at least. Uh, which one of your past teachers would you like to speak to today? Yeah, it's really interesting because I bumped into the daughter of one of my teachers, my drama teacher, who I really, really liked. I mean, I, I wasn't the most gifted academically at school. I think I learned a lot more. After leaving school, in many respects, particularly even academically for reading books and listening to wise people. But um, Mr. Gollidge was my art teacher. And I don't know why my mum decided that I shouldn't do drama, even though it was the only thing I got A's at. I'm not saying I was any good, but it was the only thing that I seemed to put any energy into. To do art in case I was ever unemployed, that I could work as a, I don't know, something in the art, you know, feel like a cop, I don't know, designer or whatever. She thought that was the way. So I did art. Pretty lousy artist, I have to say. Uh, I think I'd scrape through with the sea. But he took me on board. He could see that, that I was struggling. And he got me into photography and he taught me how to develop my own pictures. 
and that got me into movies and understanding movies and he would talk to me about movies when everybody else was off you know doing still lives of feathers I'd go we had mm. a dark room I'd go in and I'd develop my own prints so that really got me into photography and he was he was a very he was the most scariest man he was a big Welshman he had a big white beard a bit like Father Christmas but the angry version of Father Christmas <laughs> with a booming Welsh voice. So Mr. Gollidge is the man. I don't think he, he's no longer with us, but if it was anyone, I'd like to say a huge thank you to it would be him. Well, the final question I've got, and it might be one like the sleeping question where you've got a few favourites, <laughs> but if you had to pick just one, what would go into your dream sandwich? Oh, um... Yeah, the, talking about food. We always <laughs> like to ask a food question. Like, I feel we've got thanks, we've got our plot twist Tom, questions. Thanks, Tom, for clearing that one up for me. Um, <laughs> I gosh, one of the things I used to really look forward to when I was younger, after Christmas, in the evening, was to go and make myself. And this sounds awful. I'd get some of the, the turkey meat, uh, some cheddar cheese, Branston oh, Branston pickle, a little bit of my mum's chestnut stuffing in like a crusty bloomer with lots of... I do that. Uh, oh, with lots, lots of, of, of real butter and then crunch it down so yes. it's thin, so it comes in those nice. And then I, when my dad wasn't looking, there'd always be like a little uh, flask of ale or whatever, you know, and you'd be able to help yourself to a little bit of beer and sit there and have a turkey, cheddar cheese, pickle and stuffing, oh. white bloomer on butter sandwich. You're yeah. speaking my language. Oh, yeah. You're speaking my language. I have I have that every year as well. That's a comfort. That's, that's not controversial. That's a comfort. Well, it can be considered to be these days, and you have to be very mindful of some people being upset about people that you meet and stuff like that. But also, I can go. What other things do I make? I do like the carbs. Mm. I like pastas and things like that, which you know. Oh, yeah. So not in a sandwich. Though I have had a macaroni cheese sandwich. I'll tell you one thing: you should do with macaroni cheese occasionally is put a little bit of mustard in it. Does work. Ooh. Okay. I had a macaroni cheese pie the other day. That worked. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll tell you one of the other things that I do is get smoked mackerel, you know, like you buy in the supermarket. Obviously, take the skin off the back, mash it up again with grated cheddar cheese. You're supposed to use cream, but I just cheat and use a bit of horseradish, so it's a little bit more softer. Toast a um, bit of bread, generally sourdough, one side, lightly on the other side. (laughs) Then take it out. Mash with a fork that um, smoked mackerel, cheddar cheese, and horseradish. Then pop it back in till it's nice and molten and golden. Lovely winter's afternoon with a cup of tea, or possibly a glass of Pinot Noir. Get in there. I like that. Just before we ask you a first plot twist question, I'm intrigued. What do people when they see you in the street? Because obviously you do ten years on EastEnders, and you've come back to the show. All the documentaries, which have been so popular, not just in the UK either. What, what do people say to you when they bump into you? Get out of my way. <laughs> <laughs> um, in terms of the fame question, it depends where you are. It can depend on what they've been doing. If they've been in the pub all day, they want to give you a hug sometimes or they might want to give you a little bit of a tap, <laughs> which I had both on Friday night. I, I, went out for the, <laughs> I went out for the first time in a long time to watch some rugby on a Friday night. And, um, yeah, there were blokes out there that were definitely up for... Uh, showing me how tough they were. And there were also ones that wanted really? to give, give me a big hug and cry on my shoulder. So it can it manifest itself in that particular environment where alcohol has been taken into two very different forms of affection, should we call it? Yeah. Um, but in general, most people are really nice. And I've always, I think I've only turned around one selfie. And that was because someone said, oh, you, give me a in selfie. And I went, 
Not today, my friend. Oh, happens. Yeah. Happens. Yeah. Um, Has anyone it... recreated the scene in Papua New Guinea? Because that's one of the most iconic. <laughs> no. they, they pointed a no. fake gun at you and said, are you going to kill me? A, a lot of people ask me to say Super Army Soldier because of the Ricky Gervais <laughs> thing, uh, which I'm more than happy to do. I'm more than happy to do, depending on how it's done. But um, in general, it's just a wave and a nod and a smile. And I think, you know, if you don't know someone, mm. you know, you don't get getting into a 20-minute conversation with someone if you've got on your way to get the shopping and you've got to get back before the kids need to be put in the bar, but whatever it may Or you're on your way. I'll tell you what I did. So I'm researching a new show, and people think that obviously I have a team full of researchers and I just sit here, you know, doing Zooms. I do a bit of that. But also, <laughs> I'm, in, I'm in the Volkswagen Beetle because the wife needs a car for the kids, a bigger car. So I'm in the Volkswagen Beetle going down the M40 and up the M6 to meet a guy in a Toby Carvery in Stafford to find out whether he's going to be a contributor for the film. And I get there, and in between, there were some real nice people that work in a local care home wanting selfies. In between me trying to interview him to find out whether he'll be any good for the film, which takes two hours, you know, I soon realised that he's not what he promised he was going to be. Oh. You know, the poor lad is not very well. He's a very nice man, don't get me wrong. So two hours of my life, three lives, three hours of my life getting up there, two hours out of my life do, trying to do an interview with him apart from uh, everybody else going to Toby Carvery who wants a selfie with Grant Mitchell or Ross Kemp and I don't really define between the two. <laughs> and then I get in the car and I get onto the M6 and I, it's a tailback for three hours before I get on the M4. And it's like, oh that's, what, that's what documentary making is about, everybody. It's not about being at the awards ceremony it's far from mm. that. And it's certainly not just being on a plane flying into the Lebanon or, you know, East Timor, Timor-Leste or wherever it may be into Colombia. A lot of it is sitting in traffic on the M6. Well, I think if you've only turned down one selfie in your career, I'm pretty sure you're, it's doing a, you're doing a pretty good job with yeah, that. Definitely. <laughs> I, I, get one, I get asked though once every six months, so it's not an issue. Really. I don't believe that. Right, so we're coming on to our first plot twist question. And I yes. feel... This could go many ways with you because you've got so many great stories. Um, but our big plot twist question for you is, at what point in your life has something taken an unexpected turn? So we see plot twists in films where things change direction or something unexpected happened. But if you had to pick one pinnacle moment from your life that that's happened, what do you think it would be? There's not one, there's too many. I, I, I think there was an ambush in a place called Ducelle where I'd that all the pre-deployment pre training, you know, being out on Salisbury playing the winter before the summer, walked miles and miles and miles, learned how to, because you have to be taught how to use the weapons, taught how to do the first aid, done all the health and safety stuff, and then you get those rounds going past your head and everything slows down. And, they, you know, people say your life flashes before you. It's not that. You just think... It does slow down inside your head and you think about, I remember having this real clear, I was single, I just got divorced, I had a Porsche and a house and a swimming pool, which are absolutely meaningless in life, mm. trust me. But you only know that at that moment when you've got your face dug into a field and rounds are zipping to your left and your right and RPGs are whooshing over your head. And, and at that moment, that was one of the most, cathartic moments of my life where I decided that if I survived this and you'll talk to many people who've been in the same situation everybody promises to change their lives but many of us just go back become rats on the wheel as soon as we get back to mm. what we call normality but that really did change me 
And I didn't realize that that was going to be pretty much like that for the rest of the time that I was there. And I carried on going back for the next five and a half years. Um, but that one moment really made me analyze what I perceived to be important in my life, what mm. I thought was a sense of achievement, what I considered to be an achievement. And also changed me in terms of my attitude towards telling the truth and not telling the truth, which I've tried to be as true to as I possibly can do ever since. That's quite extraordinary. One thing I want to ask you about these sort of experiences, because you've done so, I mean, you, I've read there's over 100 documentaries that you've done and different environments that you've you've been in. How, how do you plan that? How did you decide that we're going to go to, we're going to deal with Somali pirates? And how do you then set up the communication? What's the logistics in, well, in starting that process? So with the great thing that I had when we were at Sky was basically, there were some brilliant bosses there that basically trusted us the ga gangs came organically out of the fact that I met a guy, and that was a life change. You wanted to U-turn in your life. I was doing a number of very famous people turned this job down, and I was unemployed, and I thought, well, I'll do it. Um, to go and do a thing about America's love affair with guns, it was called Fatal Attraction. I think it's still on on the net. And in, and in it, I, um, I interviewed a guy called Bloodhound who'd been shot 26 times, and I went, bullshit, no one's been shot 26 times. Obviously, it wasn't on one day. It was... A sliding scale over the years and times that he'd been a leading member of the Bloods in Los Angeles. But when he lifted his top up and he'd been cranked open, I could see there were six mil holes in his chest. He'd been, trigger had been pulled under his chin while he was on the ground. It had taken the end of his tongue off, exited by his left nasal, uh, by the entrance to his nose, re-entered on the arch of his left eyebrow and had finally stopped between his scalp and his Good skull. Lord. Yeah, that's... I think he had a tattoo that said lucky when he lifted up his red bandana. Anyway, meeting him totally caused me to rethink the image that was being put out there at the time because MTV, it was MTV. I mean, the internet was in its infancy. Mm. And also the image that was being put out there by music producers, mainly at the time predominantly white ones, was that rap was cool, carrying guns was cool, having gold braces was cool, get rich quick, you know. It was even before... 50 Cent had come along, to be honest, right? Um, and this guy was the antipathist of this. He was doing it to survive. And he didn't have a supermodel wife. He had a very kind wife with two kids on either hip and a block toilet. And he had a Smith & Wesson tucked down the back of his pants. And he had an AK-47 on the wooden table at the back of his guard, well, if you can call it that, his yard. And he said, if someone slows down and starts firing, you better hit the deck because I'm firing back. And it was like... Okay, wow. uh, and that was a real wake-up call for me again, and I should not have got on with him. I'm a white bloke kid then, I would suggest, very naive anyway, but we hit it off, and I got on very well with him, and we had a sense of humour and a laugh, and I went back and filmed with him later on. And he, I couldn't help thinking that if he'd been born five blocks or maybe ten blocks in a different, mm. different direction, his life would have been totally different because this was a very bright very obviously tenacious, strong human being, but circumstance had caused him to be and live a certain way. And I thought that was worth investigating and that's how I got into making documentaries. And I think what's interesting is you would probably say that you're not your sort of conventional journalist, but I think because you're more relatable to a lot of people, you've taken those issues a lot wider than potentially that they would have been. You've reached different audiences. Uh, yeah, I, I, of course I have. And I think, you know, a lot of journalists 
don't even refer to me as a journalist. They think that, you know, I like the ones that do the TV reviews, call themselves journalists and never leave their desks. But I'm not going to I'll get upset about things like that because I've got bigger things keeping me awake at night. Yeah. Just quickly going back to those individuals that you do meet, whether it's a gang member, whether it's somebody that's openly admitted to killing, you know, hundreds of people, for example. Yes, which I've done, sadly. Very sadly. Do you have to switch it on in that moment? Is there a point at which you enter a territory, you know you're about to meet somebody where you have to then kind of get in the zone? and? Yeah, I think you do, you get a game face. I think that's, I think I'd be a liar if I said, of course you do. And and also, you know, being an actor in some respects helps you in that. You're not acting, but I think, mm. you know, you are, you have to be in control of your emotions at certain points. And one of the few times I have lost it was when I was interviewing Mr. Khan down in the Sundarbans in India when I mm. found he admitted to killing over 300 girls on camera. And when I saw the translator listening to, and she was a criminologist as well as being a translator for us, and these tears is just falling down her face. And I, I could tell what he, and he was like, he was slightly trying to get teary. And the more teary he got, feeling, feeling sorry for himself about admitting what he had done, the more rage developed inside me. And I did, I did want, I said, I, I walked away, I, said, I, want to fucking, I want to kill him, I want to kill him. But I couldn't, because he had his minors with him. And also, I'd probably still be in a prison somewhere. But that was one that will always stay with me in terms of not being able to control my emotions. Mm. My barometer is not looking at you, who I'm interviewing. My barometer is the face of the translator, the Terp, who's often always my fixer. And if I see them getting sweaty armpits, it's definitely time to call <laughs> the special word and get out of there. And I'll be honest, you know, that happened on numerous occasions. Sometimes we stayed and sort of like dug our way out. Other times we made our excuses and left. But Again, you know, there is no training for that. You just developed a better way of dealing with the atmospherics and understanding those atmospherics. And also, you know, rather than just upping sticks and leaving, you may want to come back to them another day. So you find a way of, of exiting without and leaving the door swinging, hopefully. I was going to say, how do you find that balance? Because you're speaking to people who are very dangerous and are admitting to things that demonstrate what they are capable of. How do you find the balance of pushing enough to get the information you're after, imparting your opinion, but not taking that over the line into a, as you quite rightly explained, like life-threatening situations? Well, it depends on the, on the on person you know, you're dealing with. Some people are cool, calm and calculating until you say the wrong thing. Also, sometimes I'll ask a question that I want the answer to and, and that translator will ask something completely different. I'll give you two examples of that. Once in Somalia, I are so you know you're a pirate you're a pirate oh yeah he's a pirate I'm glad because we're in Somalia and there's a good chance I was getting shot if we hang around for too long let's get to it so how, how many ships have you taken and what he asked him in Somalian was have you ever been on holiday before all right to which she answered I've only ever been to Eritrea on the back of a truck then I answer because I think I've got an answer to how many ships and I go so how many ships do you take and he asked him how many camels he had because they're, they're a source of wealth in Somalia. We don't find this out till we get back to the edit and we use a Somali translator to it. He'd been chewing cat as well, if you know it, it's a stimulant. If you chew too much of it, you become pretty incoherent. But this was half past six in the morning. He must have had a, he was still on the chat from the night before, the cat from the night before. Anyway, guess what happened as soon as we saw the interview? 
was on a plane back to Ethiopia to get on a plane to go to Djibouti, to get in a boat to go back into Somalia, to get a proper, mm. a proper translator to do it all over again. Um, so, you know, things do get lost in translation. That's part and parcel of doing the job. Some people you turn up and you think you've got the best interview in the world. And they decide they're not going to, they're going to clam up. So, you know, mm. I often compare it, some of the Afghans say something like, you know, if it looks too good to be true, it often is too good to be true. And, you know, one of the Afghans said to me, he said, if it, if it looks, if it looks legitimate, then I'm not touching it. There's got to be some kind of kink in the snake. Otherwise it's not a snake. <laughs> So, you know, you expect that, that when you're doing programmes like that, that you are, if, if all of the promises turn out to be true, then probably they've, they've been lying. Just, just before Fran asks you a special, a Ross Kemp special plot twist. Oh, God. Uh, God. <laughs> it's coming. <laughs> I, I just want to ask, what, aside from the actual war zones, because, of course, you know what you're going into, where were you the most vulnerable? I think the vulnerability is a mixture of lots of things. Just, look, when you can't get away... When there is no exit, and we always plan on, on at least two, for instance, in Papua New Guinea, when the guys pulled the guns on us, and forget the fact that I was more worried about the big spears, the ones that you can't see on camera had, and my cameraman had a gun in his back and carried on filming, so he's a lot braver than me. I'm seeing life in 360 in colour. He's seeing it through a matchbox in black and white. You know, so... You know, your real brave people are not me. The people that the real brave people, the people that stay behind after we leave, they're the really brave ones. And and then it's the people like the cameraman, who I've got. You know, I'm lucky to have had over the years some very people have become very close friends. But for my most fun, I, there's not one place. I mean, we got held in Libya. I think we're the only Europeans to get down to Brac, which was Gaddafi's whole town. It's part, it's not far from the border with Chad. How we got down there was a miracle. Negotiating our way through the, through the airport was pretty tough. Uh, getting down there was tougher. They started burning tires in the village, which wasn't a good sign. And then they closed us in, in the vehicles. And I just went, look, this is not what you're supposed to do after doing your, you know, your safety course and stuff like that, but I'm not going to be trapped here. So I got in the driver's seat because our driver was out. They're all arguing with each other. They've all got guns. So I just got us out of there. I didn't drive off because there was nowhere to drive to. <laughs> but um, I got us out and then he, he berated me. And then that night we were just put under armed guard. We were separated inside his flat, put under armed guard. And my sound man, Dave Williams, decided to pay autobahn on his little music thing, <laughs> non-stop. And I said to him, if they do come in in the early hours of the morning to shoot us, I want to see you shot dead first. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so, the, the, so the amount of humour that goes on, whether it be very dark, is something that also sees mm. you through. Oh, the you vulnerability. So places it. like Libya, Libya, no one's going to come and get you, not that far south. Papua New Guinea, no one's going to come and get you. you never be under, and why should they come and get you? If you're the one that's made a decision to go down there, do not be expecting people, you know, the SAS to come through the doors to save you. There are a lot more mm. people that are far more valued to the world than you. So you've got to take that on board if you're going to get involved in that stuff. And that's why, you know, maybe I, it's not happening for me at the moment in terms of that. You know, that I've got friends who I know are out in the Ukraine at the moment. And, you know, having air cover is one thing when it's on your side. Having air cover against you is a totally different thing. And, you know, I am sadly witnessed the, um, the devastation that those kind of armaments can do to not only buildings, but to people. And it is, mm. 
Uh, it's, not, it's beyond describing. Yeah, but any, look, look, it's anywhere where you cannot get out, where you're totally in their hands. And mm. I don't like doing that. And I know when it happens. And, I know, and I'm very, very relieved when the plane takes off or the vehicle gets out of that area. Imagine your wife is as well. Yeah. Um, yeah, to be honest, um, you know, one of the reasons that probably the relationship has lasted this long is that Renee's pretty practical. She's Australian. She's a lawyer. She's very straight. And um, she knows, she knew what I did for a living. She didn't, she'd never seen it. She had no idea that I was Grant Mitchell or anything like that. And she didn't really understand that I was doing documentaries. And I just came back from Afghanistan when I first met her and I generally behaved quite badly for the first four or five weeks, no, days after I came back from Afghan. I changed now, obviously, but um, I used to go on a bit of a bender with some of the guys. And she sort of straightened me out on that one, straightened me out on lots of things, but she knows what I do. And, you know, uh, there's a great saying, uh, you know, particularly used by mates of mine in the, uh, in, the, in the armed forces, which is quick goodbyes and long hellos. Nice. I like that. Now, we, we had come up with a plot twist question. Yeah. That was especially, it was a Ross Kemp special plot twist question. And I feel you might have covered some of this, but we're going to ask it again because I feel you've probably got plenty more stories in the locker. <laughs> but has there been a situation in all of your travels and experiences that you've gone into expecting one thing and the outcome has been the complete opposite? I'll tell you what's one thing is where really is to see your own demise on television and know that you're still alive, but not sure whether you're going to make it out of the building. <laughs> we, we were in a place called Liari, and for people that don't know, it's a no-go area in Karachi. And a guy called Izer Baloch controlled that area of Liari for a very long time. He's now in prison, as far as I know, in the UAE. Anyway, we're on his roof in the middle of Liari doing an interview, and a sniper round goes between me and the cameraman, Jonathan Young, right between us. And of course, we hit the ground and we're scrabbling around the dust, and we get down. He, him and his entourage and all his armed soldiers, there's a firefight going off outside the building. I can hear rounds going out and rounds coming in. And he tells us we must go to our safe room. And I'm going, is this going to be safe or is this not going to be safe? I don't know what's going to happen. Anyway, we get in there and um, the television's on and they're speaking English. They're saying four journalists have just been captured by Uzer Baloch, Western journalists, and they have been killed by him. And I look up to him. I'll never forget, I looked up to him and he went, he knew what I was thinking. He was thinking, you are going to hmm. shoot us, aren't you? And he went... Not today, not today, my friend. And I was like, <laughs> I hope so. Anyway, we're in there, it goes all dark, and we're exp I'm expecting bombs and soldiers to come in with, like, torches on. And it goes dark, and I wait for a bit, and I wait for a bit. And I always carry um, a pocket knife and a, and a big lighter with me, just in case I have to build a fire. I don't know, I don't know, and cut my nails. Anyway, so I, <laughs> I said, we'll do a piece of camera. So I got my big lighter out, it's some camera, and I do a piece of camera with a big light and say, the lights have gone out, we're in the safe room, we don't know what's <laughs> going to happen. Anyway, it all quiets down. We get out, we're in, we use the famous mini combi van, draw the curtains, and we're going on our way out of Liari. And we get out of Liari, and the director, turns to me and says, look, do you know what, just do some walking shots. Everyone's calmed down now, we just need some walking shots. We're, we're right at the end of the filming. Yeah, of course I will, I'll get out and do some walking shots. And this tuk-tuk goes past me and there are two women that are completely covered for, for religious regions. Uh, you can't see, they're wearing black. And this voice just goes to me, Oi, are you Grob Mitchell? And I went, <laughs> are you Grob Mitchell? I went, um, yeah, who, who are you? She said, oh, 
Um, I'm from Bromsgrove. Um, uh, I manage this guy. I mean, and we live, we live in, we live in, we live in Karachi. So uh, there's always a funny side to lots of stuff that goes down. <laughs> I did not see that I coming. Did, That's I did not a see, great one. I did not see the lady from Bromsgrove coming in a tuk-tuk. No, not after wow. just being shot on a roof. When, when we wrote that question, that's exactly the punchline of that story that I was <laughs> yeah, waiting exactly. for. I really enjoyed that. <laughs> Ross, I just want to ask you a couple more things. Before we get to one final Plotter's question, we've talked a lot about scary things yep. and hairy you know, situations and moments. Where do you feel most comfortable and at peace? Oh, in my garden. That sounds a bit odd, doesn't it? No, no in my I like garden. That. No. Uh, particularly, obviously, when, when spring comes along. I also like having an outside fire. You know, mm. uh, if the kids go to bed, I've got like a little fire pit on the balcony and I, and I go out there and I sit there and watch the sky. And yeah, I've always found, um, and it's, you know, it's primeval, isn't it, to want to do that. And I think it's something that we should do more mm. often if we can, to sit around fires and talk. Uh, in the garden, it's nice. And I'm so lucky, you know, I've, I've, my heart went out to a lot of people during lockdown, not only for the people that got ill or the relatives of people who got ill, but people didn't have gardens, man. That's a mm. hard call. To ask people to stay in, particularly when it was really hot during the first lockdown. I don't think I could have, you know, no, sorry, helped with tough. that. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, my garden is my place of... Safe space. Safe, yeah, my safe space. Yeah, I'm yeah, lucky. Like Let's uh, ask you one final plot twist question. This is a plot twist person. So somebody who's unexpectedly had a, a sort of impact and support in your life, who, who would come to mind? There's lots of people. God, that's a really hard one to answer. I mean, a lot of my friends, and I'm not a guy that's got a massive collection. I don't have any any friends. I've got one friend who's an actor, really. Um, that doesn't say too much about me. I've got a lot of friends <laughs> who, uh, uh, you know, ex-rugby mates and mates in the military, some still serving, some not. I'll tell you who was a lovely man, and sadly he's passed, is Jamal Edwards. And I only got to know yes. him for a short period of time, only over a two-year period. But my God, he was an incredible human being. I shouldn't say my God, but mm. he was uh, way before his time. Such a sad and, loss. Oh, and 31. one of those ones where you go, just doesn't add up if mm. there's a divine power that's overlooking us because he, there was, you know, he could get on with anyone. He, he was forward thinking. He was a diplomat. He was so wise, so wise, so eloquent. Just a lovely, lovely man. But there's lots of people. Um, I've been very fortunate to meet some amazing people over the years and some pretty <laughs> wicked ones as well. <laughs> but uh, impact on my life. I'd have to say my dad, I guess, even though him and I did oh. not get on always. And my mum, I said, to be honest with you, the people that really influence you don't have to be these grandiose people. No, no, of course. It's my mum and my dad and my granddad mm. my, and, my, and my nan. They're the people that I love. I really love I think, them. I think, like you say, you... They influence those early stages and continue throughout your life. But you've met so many different types of people from different walks of lives and different backgrounds. I'll I can imagine what, I can tell you in one, microwaves you're influenced by everyone. I'll tell you one who truly had an influence on me and will do for the rest of my life. And funnily enough, he ended up winning a Nobel Peace Prize three or four years after I interviewed. And it took me three, well, not just me, it took me and Tom Watson, who is now runs, I think, uh, the BBC desk for Africa, and he's a self-made man, came, you know, worked his way up himself and never got a lift from anyone. We were in Pansy Hospital, which is on Lake Kivu. Just to think about Lake Kivu, you can drop the UK into it, I think, twice at least. 
It takes a day and a half to get across this lake. And the genocide that I was talking about earlier was going on. And he performed, I think, is it a thousand fisted operations or something ridiculous? Like he was saving women left, right and centre. Women often had their limbs uh, cut off before they dreadful things were done to them. And um, he was just one of those people that, you know, really should have wings on his back. And I mean, I, mean, mm. I don't mean like he's, he's in the RAF. He, he, was a hum he was an angel in human form. And um, my God, the difference that one human being can do to so many lives should be seen by all of us as something that we should all try to aspire to, even in a small way. So yeah, Dr. McQuaige had the biggest influence, one of the biggest influences on me, and will always. His life was threatened on a daily basis because he was helping either Hutu and Tutsi, Tutsi and Hutu. I mean, he was saving women that they wanted to, they wanted dead. We see so many sort oh. of superheroes, don't we, on screen now, but they're the real heroes. Oh, 100%, you know, and... and mm. As I say, just recently, just the, the ICU team at uh, Milton Keynes Hospital. But mm. God, there are so many other people out there that you meet that you really puts your your minute, selfish, pity issues Puts into context. Mm. Yeah, absolutely, mm. absolutely. Well, we'd love chatting to you, Ross. And there's one final thing I want to speak to you about. It's World Cup year. And, <laughs> and, uh... Oh God! Someone berated me on again in the Guardian for being some kind of vein popping lunatic <laughs> idiot. I it's love like, it. I but, love so, it. Sorry, so, so I just mostly obviously you don't like football then, mate. Yeah, because or rugby because I'm passionate about both those sports. Every time you can play, I'm I'm checking Twitter just to see when you're going to pop up and I'm going to see a reaction. <laughs> it's just it makes the experience. But Tom, I think you have to be very careful that it has to be organic, doesn't it? If you suddenly yes. start performing it, then everyone gets it's, it. Looks yeah. it's not right, and I yeah. don't, you know, it has to be a moment of, of quite, you know, a penalty save. You know, come on, yeah. we don't win penalty shootouts. So when that when he saved that, come on, you've got to go bonkers. <laughs> and um, I did because they really <laughs> took the first time you did it. I think it really, really took off, didn't it? Yeah, but I, I don't think again, you know. You shouldn't do it every sporting occasion because it becomes meaningless. You know, yeah. do it if you if it's genuine and you're impassioned by it. But you know, you don't do it just because you want more followers on social media. No, of course, no. I love that. Well, we've we've loved chatting to you and hearing more of your stories. Thank you so much for coming on. Good luck with uh, the new quiz show. Good luck with the documentary, and we'll catch up soon. It's been an absolute pleasure. It was brilliant. Thank you. Thank you, Fran. Thank you, Tom. Lovely speaking to you. Wasn't he brilliant? Ross Kemp, big thank you to him. And we said before, Fran, that we just knew there were going to be so many stories to unravel and so many experiences, and my word, he delivered. He really did. Every time we asked a question, it unlocked different memories. Yes. So we'd yeah. get one great answer, and I'd be like, wow, that, was, that was a great answer. And then he'd go, oh, and this. And I'd be like, wow, that is, that is also a great answer. <laughs> and this. And I'd be like, all right, Ross. Some of us have only got one answer to that question. Stop having so many great answers. I've only fallen asleep on a train. That's the really weird thing that <laughs> yeah. I've done. The most exciting thing I've done is fall asleep in a bed. Yeah. So <laughs> Not upside down or in a <laughs> Not train. Not upside down or backwards or sideways or in a bush. So there we go. <laughs> but it does, really, it does really highlight some of the experiences that he's had. It is quite, it's quite remarkable. Yeah. And he's very much someone who comes across as 
just wanting to get out there and tell the stories of the world. So he was saying about just wanting to be on the road, him and a cameraman, that's his favourite scenarios to be in. And it, it feels really quite intimate. It feels like you're just watching him exploring, which I think was what makes it such a compelling, compelling watch. And I, I like the fact that he called out his team as well. It wasn't just about him being on the front line of these situations, gun in his face in Papua New Guinea. It, it was that, no, there was a sound operator there and a cameraman who kept the camera rolling. Like they were mm. very much part of that experience. Even when you just said gun in his face, that made me a bit anxious. Like, how does he do it? Yeah. How does he do it? It is crazy. Um, but the good news is, is of the many things that Ross and Kemp and I don't have in common. So <laughs> there are a lot. Um, as in he's the hard man. And I'm probably if I did that quiz at the beginning, I'd be in negative numbers if that's even possible. <laughs> we do both love a Christmas sandwich. Uh, as do so... I, Frank. You know, so, if, you know, you're trying to make pals there, you know, trying to run <laughs> off again. But um, we, we all love a turkey and stuffing sandwich. We're all in I this together. Is it controversial? That's not controversial. He said that was. I didn't no, think it was. No, I don't think it is. That's a great choice. And if people have never tried that, I really would implore you to do so because it is... It is wonderful. Um, Food speaking, advice on plot twists. Yeah, if you were looking for that, which you probably weren't. Um, but what was quite funny was talking to him about Shipwreck Treasure Hunter was I expected to hear about the extremities of the filming. Mm. I didn't think that he would talk about finding out about his family. Yeah, I don't think he was expecting that either. When he was, was it in Portsmouth he was? And he talked about his great granddad, yeah. 13 kids, busy man. And some of the stuff that I'm kind of intrigued to see it because he was talking about like diving in and around the UK, like murky waters. It's like, what are you going to find? What are you going to expect? It's going to be, it's going to be quite yeah. interesting. Yeah. When you think yeah. of shipwrecks, you don't naturally think of off the UK shores necessarily. Yeah. So I think it'll be a, it'll be a, it'll be a good watch. And that will be arriving on now and Sky History from the 18th of April. So check that out. So in the meantime, I'm going to continue to watch Ross put himself in dangerous just, situations. Just Ross. But yeah. probably from the safety of my own home because I don't have the minerals for it. So um, we'll leave him to do what he does best. Yeah, I think he's, he's, he's the man for the job. And you too. And, and you too, Tom. It's best you also leave the hard work to the hard men. Yes, I, we've already established I'm not a super <laughs> army soldier. And I never will be. <laughs> But we'll see you next week. Ciao.